0: All right, well, last uh, two weeks we were talking about evolution, and just to kind of remind you of the conclusion we came to, this is Michael Denton. He is a microbiologist. He wrote a book called Evolution in Crisis. He's an evolutionist. He's not a believer, but he's honest with the research, and the title says it all. Evolution is, in fact, in crisis because the evidence does not support The theory, and particularly at the microbiological level, but I hope I demonstrated that at every level it doesn't support it. So, we've been looking at the issue of creation versus evolution, and Denton says ultimately the Darwinian theory of evolution is no more nor less than the great cosmogenic myths of the 20th century. Now, he says the 20th century because that's when the book was written. It was not written. So it's good today. Just as good it's even worse today. (laughs) So that kind of summarizes and last time I gave you the alternative scientific evidence that supports a creator or at least an intelligent designer. There has to be a designer. There's too much design in all of the universe. So we also concluded by asking the question, well why do people still hold evolution if there's so little evidence and there's so much other evidence that actually directs us in another another direction. We said, well, it's man's best explanation leaving God out. And since the world is dominated by unbelievers, the unbelieving world has to have an explanation, and this is the best that they have. As poor as it is, and since it's this is their man's best explanation, they don't want to face the fact that God is creator, then all men stand accountable to him. And the human heart resists that and does not want to submit to a God and as a result rejects him as creator. So that was kind of a summary of what we did last last time. We're going to look at the second issue. And I broke this one down into two parts as well. I'm really not trying to take over this class. So I need to say that for Dennis' benefit there. So we're going to deal with the, the Genesis flood versus the current understanding of geology. And I've mentioned that we don't have a problem with geology in general, particularly observational science and observational geology. We do have a problem with a branch of geology that's called historical geology. Historical geology is an attempt to reconstruct Earth history from the geological record. And that's where we have a major problem. And I'm going to introduce that to you today. All we're going to look at today is the biblical or scriptural evidence. And then next week, in fact, I'm going to have to cram next week to even touch on all that we we could talk about in terms of scientific evidence. And just up front, there is overwhelming scientific evidence for a Genesis flood. Historical geology says there is zero evidence for a Genesis flood. Obvious conflict, right? Which one is right? I'll lay the evidence out for you, and I'll let you uh, decide on your own. But today, I want to lay the foundation. The only reason we want to hold to a universal worldwide flood is because I believe that that's what the scriptures teach. And you have to really go through all kinds of twisting and pretzeling in order to interpret the passages differently. So that's what I want to focus in on to show you the passages. The narrative is long, so we won't be able to look at all, all of the passages or every, every verse. So I've tried to summarize into categories the evidence that the, the text gives us And uh, we'll look at that when we get past an introduction here. So I'd like to introduce you to this area with a few things. First of all, Henry Morris, who actually started the creation, the modern creation movement in mid-50s with his book called The Genesis Flood. It's a classic, and that started thinking, he's not a theologian, he's an engineer actually. So from a scientific background, he argues for a worldwide universal flood, which was unheard of at that time, except in small minority circles. But even the theologians have been intimidated to believe what some believed current science was teaching. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Henry Moore says, The field of science that has probably been most effectively used by skeptics in attempting to discredit the Bible, is geology. And again, he's talking about historical geology, in other words, the reconstructing of Earth history, not geology in general. So that starts us off. There are three major issues. We'll touch on all three of them. The third one we'll reserve (coughs) one of our whole sessions on, unless I divide it into two parts. (laughs) But there's three major issues that we'll consider. First of all, was there a real flood in history? In other words, the historicity of the flood. Did it actually take place? The historical geology says there's no evidence for it. So if it took place, who knows where it was or how extensive it was, or maybe it's just a legend. So we need to deal with the issue of whether or not it is a real historical event that actually took place just as it's described in the book of Genesis. If you have a high view of Scripture then, and you treat the text carefully, then you come to the conclusion there has to have been a flood in earth history. So we'll look at that issue briefly. And because there's so much controversy and the church has been intimidated, we need to devote some time talking about what was the flood like. And there's different theories. In other words, theologians were intimidated by the science of the day, and they'd come up with alternative ideas, and all these alternative ideas try to fit current thinking in terms of current historical geology thinking and accommodate the biblical text. But I think all of those theories fail. There's one that's the most popular that I would say is the majority view, the view probably of most believers, and I'm not talking about liberals. Liberals abandoned the scriptures long ago. I'm talking about evangelicals, sometimes even Bible-teaching churches. The majority view is not the view that I'm going to present. I shouldn't assume and say our, at least my view, <laughs> and hopefully it'll be yours as well, is that there, it is a universal flood. In other words, it's worldwide, all-encompassing, destroying virtually everything. So we'll talk about the nature of the flood. We'll spend most of our time dealing with that. And touching on that, and part of the reason that there's a problem, is the time frame. And historical geologists accept the evolutionary concept of long ages. And each of these layers represent millions and millions of years. So they accept a 4.5 billion year time frame for the Earth Now, is that the truth? In other words, has science established that? Or is there an alternative explanation that better fits a biblical time frame? The Bible gives you the impression that the earth is not billions of years, but more in the range of thousands of years. We'll deal with that separately, but it enters into this area because of the geological column. In fact, that's one of the supports that the... Not only the unbeliever, but a whole segment of Christianity uses to support the idea of billions of years. And by the way, that's the majority view amongst the church as well. So be aware of that. So those are the three major issues that we'll deal with. Time frame of geology. Now, historical geology, these are the major problems that we have as believers with historical geology, real quickly. And the reason we reject... Their conclusions, first of all, it's based on evolution. So if evolution is a bad theory with no evidence or virtually no evidence, then the whole structure of historical geology has a very faulty foundation. And that, in fact, is the foundation of historical geology, is the assumption that evolution is, in fact, true. So if it's not true then we have a problem from the very beginning. Secondly, it assumes a concept, long word, but I'll explain it in simple terms, hopefully. It's called uniformitarianism. That's a basic assumption. Unproven, in fact, it cannot be proven. The idea of uniformitarianism is you can look at the world today, the constants, the laws of science that exist today, using those constants, those rates of processes, and from those you project them into the past. In other words, the present, here's a key little phrase they use, the present is the key to the past. That's uniformitarianism. And by the way, there's a statement in the Bible, we'll look at it, that basically summarizes this was a common idea even in the first century, because it's addressed in the Bible. It doesn't use the word, but it's describing it, just like the second law of thermodynamics. I gave you a passage that describes it very precisely. It doesn't use the word second law of thermodynamics, so also this passage doesn't use the word uniformitarianism, but it describes it very accurately. Anyway... The idea that uh, there have not been massive, catastrophic events in past time. The constants, the laws of science are the same. They've never changed. And they're more, you would say, even eternal from that perspective. So whatever constants that exist today, whatever rates, for example, in geology, rates of deposition of layers, if you can measure those, and you can And at those rates, you project it back, you do come up with millions and millions of years. Okay? Uniformitarianism. We'll talk some more about that. It's based on what's called the geological column. I mentioned that briefly last time. Here's a chart of the geological column. Very typically, you'll see something like this in a geology book. This is a reconstruction of Earth history. Each of these are the layers that do exist. They give them particular names depending on the fossils that are found within them. And they put them in this sequence. And the chart is theoretical. It has a lot of problems. I'm not sure we'll have time to outline all of the problems of the geological column. One of the assumptions, obviously, is evolution. The fossils are seemingly in an evolutionary sequence. There's a better explanation why they fall into that sequence. But they would say that this is evidence for evolution. But we've already said the fossil record actually destroys the theory of evolution. So I've already touched on this. But in terms of reconstructing Earth history, this is the historical geologist. Historical geologist's interpretation of the data, his interpretation of the data, reconstructing Earth history. Now this line, the yellow line I pointed out last time, on the other slide it was a red line. There's a difference between, there's a drastic difference between the Cambrian layer that's, this is their terminology and what's called the Pre-Cambrian layer. We'll talk about that more when we talk about the science. And in
1: the Grand Canyon that's called
2: the layer of the Great Unconformity. The
0: Great Unconformity. You can see that. You can see that if you visit the Grand Canyon. Exactly. Very good, Janet. I'm going to try to show you that this is probably the boundary, the destruction boundary of the Genesis flood. In other words, it wiped out everything above the Precambrian. in other words, the Cambrian and all the layers above. And as a result of the flood, I believe it laid down in layers all of the geological column. So rather than millions of years the geological column would have been laid down within a short time frame. And I'll give you a time frame for the Genesis Flood. The text is very, very specific to the very day. We'll look at that. So, historical geology is based on this reconstruction. We'll come back to it and talk some more about it. So, it's based on evolution. It's based on uniformitarianism. Based on this reconstruction of Earth history called geological column. And it's also based on long ages, which comes out of the geological column. Billions of years rather than thousands of years. So these are the major problems. And obviously conflicts. Conflict with the Bible. There's a creator. Things did not evolve. Problem of uniformitarianism. There have been catastrophic events. The Genesis flood being one of them. The fall of mankind being another one. And there's going to be some future events that change all of the constants of science as well. And I believe the fall changed constants and laws of science. Genesis flood changed some as well. And there's going to be future changes in the, in the future as well. So here's the different views.
2: <laughs>
0: Sorry about that. <laughs> the, the conclusions of the geologists, the historical geologists, have been so convincing that the theologians had not come up with an answer until Henry Morris published the book, The Genesis Flood. Now, there were some ideas that were floating around, and there were some that had similar theories, but they were very, very few. And it wasn't until Henry Morris published his book that now people began to research this area. Today, there is a whole branch of geology within the Christian community called Flood geology. And what I'm going to give you is some of the conclusions of what is called flood geology. From the name you can figure out it's different from the secular view. Flood geology takes into account a Genesis worldwide flood. Okay? So theologians came up with these different views. All of them have been rejected except one, which is the most popular in the church today. Some propose, well, we see all these layers. Well, maybe there were multiple catastrophes and maybe all of these rock layers represent different floods and the Bible only records one of them, probably the one that's the most important one, whichever one that one is. Well, that is just stretching the evidence and it really creates actually more problems than what it solves. So multiple catastrophisms. One theologian proposed well the flood was so tranquil yes it was worldwide yes it was like it's described in the bible but it was so tranquil that it didn't leave any evidence so we don't expect to find any evidence so when the historical geologist says there's no evidence well we can agree with him because the flood was so tranquil well you have to stretch the language we'll look at the language in genesis and we'll see that to hold to that view really goes against the biblical text And the most popular view, and if you would sit down, everyone in your church, and you passed out a sheet of paper, and you asked them a question, what was the Genesis flood like? They would more than likely give you this answer. Because that's the most popular view, particularly amongst those that have thought about it and know the issues of geology. The idea that the flood was local. In other words, it only took place in a part of the world, so it wouldn't show up on the, in the geological column. It might show up in wherever the flood was, more than likely Mesopotamia, but there's no place in the world that would uh, fit the description that Genesis provides for us. And that's what I want to show you today. And I think the biblical view is that there was a, what we would describe as a universal flood. In other words, a worldwide flood that was incomprehensibly destructive, it destroyed virtually everything. And we'll, we'll see that. Okay. Now there's some problems. There's two versions of a local flood because there's some problems with the view in general. One view, it's local in all aspects. And what that means is that there are only some people, and the Bible only is talking about Mesopotamian people, and there's others outside of Mesopotamia that perhaps escaped the flood. And it's just dealing with the people of the Bible, and the flood only affected those people. Similarly, only some of the animals, the ones in the area that the flood occurred, those are the ones that were destroyed. Thus, a need for an ark to save some of those that were in that area. So that's, some theologians hold that view. There's another view where it's local geographically only. The destruction is universal, but it's only local in Mesopotamia. And this view would say it encompasses all of the people, and all of the people were in Mesopotamia, and I guess all of the animals were in Mesopotamia as well. But you can already see that there's some problems with those two versions.
1: Yeah, the universal destruction, so there was destruction everywhere?
0: No, in that geographical location. Oh,
2: there's
0: Yeah. Just that. So when it says all, all in that location. And I'm going to make a big point on the usage of the Hebrew word for all and every. Because it occurs at least 34 times in the text.
1: Um, What's
0: your name, by the way? Uh, La- Luke.
1: So, um... I read a really interesting note for
0: part of it. Say that um, again. I read
1: a really interesting book. It was about like if dinosaurs could have possibly be in the matter. And I was wondering if you knew it
0: Yep, we'll talk about dinosaurs. In fact, I believe it's the result of the Genesis flood that dinosaurs died out. And the flood would have destroyed all of the dinosaurs except those that were on the ark. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I was
2: going to say that a lot of people
0: are. Yeah, I answered that. I think they were on the ark. In fact, there's a real handy book. I'll put it in the bibliography. I need to remember to get it to you guys maybe next week. Somebody might be able to remind me. By a man by the name of Wood Merapi, who wrote an excellent book answering all these questions, kind of like the one that you asked concerning dinosaurs, concerning was the ark big enough to hold all the animals, all these issues that we raise, and he has good answers for all of them. It's probably the, the best book available. I'll get it to you. So anyway, if there was a local flood, and you know the geography of Mesopotamia, how is it going to contain all that water? You have to almost come up with a miraculous explanation that's more miraculous than what's described in the Genesis account. And this is just from Answers in Genesis, uh, kind of a to show the ridiculousness of a local flood.
2: So, yeah. the, hmm. the point you're making is that how could that much water be contained
0: locally? in Mesopotamia? Because if you know the geography of Mesopotamia, it is like a bowl, but one end is open towards the Persian mm-hmm. Gulf. Yeah. So, all the water would flow out. So, this depicts a flood covering the mountains, but it has to have an abrupt face in order to to be able to fit the geography. And that's just kind of a humorous. I thought you guys would laugh at it. But. <laughs> didn't laugh much. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't laugh much. <laughs> oh,
2: no.
0: So here's some of the problems. You took it seriously. Ooh, maybe that's how God did it. <laughs> <laughs> if a local flawed, then these are the questions that you have to answer. Why an ark? What do you need an ark for? And why do you need such a huge ark? Because in other judgments, for example, the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, God didn't uh, tell Lot, build this magnificent bomb shelter because I'm going to basically explode atomic nuclear weapons over Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities. What did he tell Lot to do? Get out of there. He could have done the same thing. It took Noah 100 years to build the ark. He could have gone around the world several times in that time frame. So why do you have to have an ark? If it's a local flood, why take animals on the ark? Animals tend to flee catastrophic events. They have a sixth sense, and most of them would flee. Some of them would be destroyed, but enough of them would flee that you could repopulate the the area if it was a local flood, and they could come back. So there's no need for an ark. Why such a large ark if... For just local animals. Because there would not be that many species of animals in that particular location. It wouldn't need to be all of the animals that are specified in the book of Genesis. Why birds on board? A local flood, birds, easily would fly out of the general area. And yet birds were taken on board. How could an ark be above the mountains? The only way you could have that is that ridiculous sketch that I showed you earlier. Six. How did Mesopotamia contain the flood? I I just explained that because of the shape of the geography of Mesopotamia. How could the flood last 370 days? And that's the time frame that we have recorded in the book of Genesis. If you think about it, even the most destructive floods, how long do they take? A few days, just a few days, two or three days, and then you have receding of the waters. you have a question? Uh, I heard a...
2: I like words, origin and meanings. I had a wonderful discussion about the word ark for Noah's ark. Mm-hmm. It's only used... That word only used twice in the Bible. One for Noah's ark and the other for the... And and it means box. Yes. Not a vessel. And the other place it's right. used is for the vessel. Ark of,
0: or, ark of the covenant. Uh,
2: no. Well, yes. But it became that. But the box or vessel that may be
0: Moses. Oh, yeah. And
2: and it, yes. the significance was the, the saving,
0: Aspect. using that
2: box as a saving vessel.
0: Vessel, yeah. And it was probably more like a box than it was like a ship.
2: Right. It didn't have a prow or things like that.
0: Because it was very buoyant. It would have been very resistant to the hydrodynamic forces of a worldwide flood. So... Number seven, how could a flood last 370 days? Number eight, did some people escape judgment? Remember, this is a judgment. What about them? Were they so righteous that they escaped judgment? They would have to be, but yet there's no note of that. In fact, the text indicates that only, the word only, is used of Noah and his family. So we have a lot of problems, some of them theological, and a lot of them just just basic physical problems. Number nine, did God break his covenant because he promised to never bring a flood again? Have there been floods since the Genesis flood? Have there been local floods? They're all local. They're all local, but he holds to his promise because he's talking about a unique flood, and I'm going to talk about the uniqueness of the word, even, that is used for flood. Okay? So, the issue... And if you want to look at it really simply, this is for the rest of you. Luke is a little bit more sophisticated, but for the rest of you, i got to simplify it. A little water over lots of time can carve out a deep canyon, right? A little bit of water, lots of time. Our theory is the alternative. Lots of water over a little time can carve out an equal canyon. Make sense? So the historical geologist holds to the idea that just a small river flow over millions of years carved out the Grand Canyon, for example. Or up in Taos, there's the Rio Grande Gorge, a little bit of water over long periods of time carved out that Rio Grande Gorge. Or is it possible that that gorge and the Grand Canyon and other physical features in other places around the world we're experiencing lots of water over a short period of time. I think the data points in the second direction, and that's what we're going to talk about. Okay? So the scriptures, first of all, the historicity of the flood, and I'm going to go over this briefly. We could spend a lot more time, but there's a few things that we can say, and you can study these on your own and go into more detail. First of all... When we look at the narrative of all the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and that's where we have a lot of the problems, is the first 11 chapters, there's no difference between the literary style or literary form, first 11, as uh, chapters 12 through 50. So 12 through 50 is narrative. In other words, it's a story of things that took place in time. There's no difference in terms of the writing style of the first 11 chapters, it's narrative as well. It's just as much a story as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Sometimes the argument is particularly when you get into Genesis 1, well it's poetic, it's not narrative. So also with the flood narratives, it's it's not narrative. Everything in the text, points towards narrative. In other words, the intent of Moses is to tell a story that is just as real as anything else he's talking about, whether it's in Genesis 12 through 50, or the book of Exodus, which Moses writes as well, or the book of Numbers. It's just historical narrative. So, what are the options? The world says, well, the story is irrelevant, doesn't matter. Geology has disproven a Genesis flood, makes it irrelevant. Some theologians would say, particularly liberals, it's a myth. It's not real. It's legendary. It's not historical. This is the second option. In fact, the book Blackmore and Page says we cannot force the ancient writer to follow our 20th century canons of historical writing. In other words, don't expect them to have the same emphasis on precision, events, time frame, etc., as what we do when we write narrative or when we write history. So they're trying to hedge here, they're trying to get away, and these are theologians. So the other alternative, it's historical narrative. Historical narrative. By the way, the photograph is a reconstruction of Noah's Ark by Answers in Genesis in their display in Kentucky. Which I would recommend seeing. I haven't been there, but someday I plan to be there. So, it's historical narrative. Everything about it in the book of Genesis, we have geographical locations, we have time frames, we have events, we have characters, we have interactions. It looks at it as historical narrative. And this is just a map of Mesopotamia, where probably civilization was concentrated particularly after the flood. I think the flood was so destructive that we have no idea what it was like before. So don't even look for the Garden of Eden. Don't look for those four rivers that are mentioned. When it talks about those four rivers in, what is it, Genesis 2, I think the flood wiped everything out. Everything that we have now is a reformation of the, the surface of the planet. We'll talk about that when we look at the scientific evidence. So, more evidence that it's historical. Uh, I mentioned Genesis 12-50 is just as historical, or 1-11 through 11 is just as historical as Genesis 12-50. Archaeology confirms historicity of all of the events, not so much before the flood, because I think everything is destroyed. In fact, that argues... from from silence for something catastrophic taking place. Archaeology has a stopping point, it appears. The New Testament, in fact, the writers of the New Testament, Jesus himself, when they mentioned Noah and they mentioned the flood, they treat it as if it's a real historical event, just like any other event. Jesus speaks of Abraham. He speaks of the Genesis flood. In fact, he uses it As an example, in the days of Noah, things will be similar to the time close to his coming, his return. So if his return is a real return, and we believe that he is going to return, then uh, the analogy that he uses of the Genesis flood and the time of Noah, then that must be a real time frame as well. Inspiration and inerrancy argues. Otherwise, you have to really do damage to the biblical text. So I take it as historical. So that's a historicity. We have clear time notes. Somebody look at verse, for example, 11. 7 11. In the 600 year, 600 year of Noah, Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the deep burst open. point I'm making here, to the day, in terms of the life of Noah. Why do you include that detail if Noah was legendary and this whole story is legendary? This is just one little piece of evidence that indicates that the writer intended to tell you this is an event. He gives you a precise day. He gives... The same precision at the end of the flood to the very day. We can calculate it out. In fact, you can come up, and I'll show you a chart. You can come up with a time frame for several events during the Genesis flood. It talks about uh, Noah in chapter 5, verse 32. Noah was 500 years old. and He became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Specific time frame. It says... In verse six, chapter seven, now Noah was 600 years old when the flood of the water came upon the earth. And then verse 11 gives us the precise to the very day. So there's all these time frames. chapter eight, verses 13, 13 and 14. Now it came about in the 600 year and first year in the first month. So 601 year, first month. And on the first month, the water was dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the cover And then verse 14, in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Precise dating. And it's consistent. There's at least 10 other references to time and specific time frame events in in the narrative. So you have these time notes. And just the detail of the narrative gives a lot of little detail that you don't find. It's not once upon a time, such and such may have happened, but it's historical. Noah, in the rest of the Bible, is treated as a real character, a real person that lived in time. And I've already mentioned that Jesus refers to him and other writers. Also, and this is an argument for a universal flood from, from history, all of the major cultures, there's at least 150 major cultures around the world today that have a flood story and historically that had a flood story. There's a Babylonian flood story. There's an Egyptian flood story. All these cultures.
1: Hindu. Hmm? Hindu. Hindu. There's a Greek one.
0: The Greek one. Very good. South American cultures have a flood story. Some of them have similar characteristics to the Bible. Some of them depart, but it almost seems like there was a impression left on the. The historical thinking of man such that they have these traditions. Now they're all perverted over time. The Bible gives us the inspired version. The Old Testament refers to Noah and the flood on a few occasions, and so does the New Testament. So this is a historical event. Okay, the flood narratives. This is just an outline of the flood narratives. I outline chapter 4 through 9, the early history of civilization, where we just have bare essentials, not a lot of detail. We have the decline of civilization, chapter 4 through chapter 6, verse 8. And we have the judgment of civilization, 6, 9 through eight twenty two, And then you can break that down into three parts. Preparation for the flood, judgment of the flood, recession of the flood. Then we have a new beginning in chapter 9. I don't want to spend too much time. This is the essence of the flood. It's a judgment of the wicked. It's universal in terms of mankind and also universal in terms of destroying the earth. But there's a two-part story. It's a story of judgment, but it's also a story of what? Redemption. Redemption or salvation. Very good. Or deliverance. In fact, every judgment of God has these two aspects. The judgments of God, the essence of what God is doing in judging, he is separating out that that he loves from that that is destroying what he loves. So it's a separating out. So there's a salvation element to every judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah, God separated out Lot, destroyed the cities. Genesis flood, God separated out Noah and his family, delivered them, and destroyed everything else. So there's a deliverance aspect of the righteous. And if you read the text... The first occurrence of the word grace is in reference to Noah in the Old Testament. A Hebrew word for grace in that passage. Noah found favor, you might say grace. In other words, Noah received grace from God. It wasn't that Noah became righteous on his own. It was God's grace, just like with any human being. We receive his grace, his righteousness by grace. So he is righteous. Because God produced it it in him. Well, it's selective in only Noah's family, and it also included animals. Preservation of animals, or deliverance of animals. That's the essence of the flood. That's the story. Two parts. Okay, these are the categories. These are the categories that I've organized lots of details of the text And each of these you could consider as arguments for a universal flood from the biblical text. Number one, God's the one that determined it. It's God's determination and the emphasis of the text. 6-7, notice it says the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created. This is a decision, a determination that God made. This is not a natural occurrence. There are elements that God used that are natural in producing this judgment, but it is supernatural. It is produced by God himself. It is brought on by him. There are supernatural elements to it. The text lets us know those elements that are supernatural, that God brought it. So it's God that is blotting out. It is a judgment. Uh, man whom I had created from the face of the earth. That's 6.7, 6.17. Behold, I, and then he emphasizes it, in case you missed it, this is God speaking, even I, so you can't miss it, all right? I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth. God is doing it. This is God's determination. It's not just geology and the work of physical processes, God determined it and God brings it. so God's determination and there's some other references to God bringing different things and doing certain things in producing not only the flood but all of the associated events of the flood. So number one, it's God's determination It's poor can't read, can't that. read that Universal <laughs> corruption <laughs> your eyes are corrupted. <laughs> <laughs> You think I ought to change the font colors? Yes, yeah, I
2: think so. To
0: accommodate to your corrupted vision. (laughs) Universal corruption. The text is clear in terms of the corruption is universal. In other words, it's not speaking of only the people in Mesopotamia or only a select group of people, but the text seems to indicate that this is a worldwide condition. And if it's a worldwide condition, then God is going to deal with the corruption of the peoples of the world, no matter where they reside. The key passage, Genesis 6-5, then the Lord saw that the wickedness, the wickedness of man was great. Notice the emphasis here. On the land of Mesopotamia? No. No. On the earth, the Eretz, which speaks of the whole earth. So it was great on the earth and that only a few intents. No, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only, in other words, this is the only thing that we're preoccupied, preoccupied with evil and not just once in a while, but continually. That's pretty universal. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart, only evil continually. And in the Bible, you see these cycles of sin where man degenerates and God has to intervene and bring judgment. That happened with the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities surrounding. God brings judgment. This is where culture was. This is where humanity was preceding the Genesis flood. God intervenes to keep man from destroying himself. So it intervenes to save humanity through one family. But notice the universal language. Couldn't be clearer. And if you look at the Hebrew text, the emphasis is heightened by the way that Moses chooses his words here. He uses, and this is where I kind of am motivated to use alliteration in some of the studies that I do. Depravity, six five, Wickedness. You probably are not familiar with Hebrew, but it's ra'at. Starts with the R sound. And notice the word was great. Rabah starts with the R sound, was great. Only rak starts with the R sound. Seems like Moses is deliberately choosing language to emphasize not only this universal idea, but he's doing it so that you can remember it. In other words, you can remember these words start with this resh in the Hebrew or this R sound. And also the word evil, ra'ah. See, the same letter? Yes,
2: right. yes.
0: And by the way, Hebrew goes from, what is it? Like right, like right to left. Right. Right. Yeah. So this is the first letter. Ra'at, Rabah, rak. And that y, what, the y, it's not a Y, but you know, no. the last one is the same as the middle letter. It's yeah. just cool. Yep. Kind of interesting. So if you don't get it in English, read it in Hebrew and it'll really impact. All right.
2: So can you explain what that means, the R sound? What, What are you trying to say? It's alliteration.
0: In other words, Moses is calling attention by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And then you have in 6, 11, and 12, now the Mesopotamian area, no, now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and again, the earth was filled with violence, not just a little bit, but filled... Verse 12, God looked on, notice the earth again, three times. And behold, it was corrupt two times. The idea of corruption. For all flesh had corrupted, third time. Can't miss it, right? All flesh had corrupted their way upon earth, fourth time. See the emphasis there? Universal, universal corruption. Luke.
1: So I'm pretty sure Moses... um,
0: you're mumbling. <laughs> uh,
1: so it looks like Moses is making it very clear that it was the world. Yes,
0: that's the whole point. Universal corruption, the whole world corruption. Very good. Very good observation. Is that better? I magically changed the, the color for it's you. getting darker. That. <laughs> I didn't read that well, you asked for it, so I did it. <laughs> Magic. So it's God's determination from the start to the, to the end. There's universal corruption. In other words, were there some people outside of the flood that were not corrupt? No. The text seems to indicate that it's worldwide. Is this, about
2: the Jesus? this is talking about
0: the pool. This is talking about humanity, all of humanity. Yes. All right. The destruction is universal. When we speaks of the waters, the waters prevailing. It emphasizes this idea of prevailing four times. In other words, they continue this idea of lasting, prevailing, or being strong is a literal idea, four times. It also speaks of the earth a few times, all of the earth. I gave you that one passage where it occurs four times in two verses, all the earth, universal destruction. It involves all of mankind, 6.13 and a few other passages as well. All of mankind is destroyed, not just those in Mesopotamia. It also deals with all air-breathing animals, 7.4, and there's some that even come before 7.4, and there's some afterwards as well. So it emphasizes more than one time in all of these. So the destruction is universal with one exception. That's chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, and that is reiterated as well. The exception is Noah and his family. We have a lot of repetition in the narratives, so if you didn't get it the first time, hopefully it strikes you the second or maybe the third, and sometimes there's four times that things are, are mentioned, sometimes even more than that. Universal destruction, and this is... A big part, so let me expand this. The language that is used of the Genesis flood is universal language. And you have to really limit the language to come up with a local flood. And you have to do it over and over and over, which means you have to manipulate the text over and over. Let me illustrate what I mean. Look at one passage. This is just one passage. Chapter 7, verses 19 through 23, the waters prevail, and this is an unusual construction in Hebrew, where you have a word twice, doubled, okay? There's one of the prevailing verses where it uses the water to prevail more, the Hebrew word is mead, more and more, doubled. It's almost, it's a superlative, a Hebrew superlative, you can't miss it. So speaking of universality here, the waters prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all, the Hebrew word is coal cursed at least 34 times. I counted 34, and I'm not sure I got all of them. All right? And I'm going to show you another listing of them. So that all, so you have to limit that, all the high mountains in Mesopotamia. You have to limit it. Everywhere, the same Hebrew word, coal. If you didn't get it, all of the high mountains, here's another Hebrew superlative all of the high mountains under the heavens. In other words, everything under the heavens. What about North America? Is that under the heavens? What about South America? Is that under the heavens? What about Asia? Is that under the heavens? It's not just Mesopotamia. So it's all of the mountains all over the world, all the places. Under the heavens.
1: So in the English language, you can change
0: everywhere to all. I mean, mm-hmm. right? Pardon
1: me? You can change everywhere to all.
0: Well, it's the same word. It's just a translation.
1: It's just the English language that has too many ways of saying it.
0: By the English, it, it translates better with Ever. everywhere than all under the heavens. But literally, that's what it would be, all under the heavens.
2: So would that include, so would that include I mean, animals who live in the ocean? They still have all the water the It talks about on land and the birds, but did all of the animals in the ocean die? No. Too, even
0: no. In their no, because air they were not breathing. taken on the earth.
2: All the air breathing. Yeah, okay, mm-hmm. gotcha. Right.
0: Now, millions and millions of them did die because they're preserved in the fossil record. And if the fossil record is a record of the Genesis flood, then they were destroyed... But not all of them, well, so know, they didn't know. have to be on the ark because they could swim and survive. The dolphins
1: are yeah. starving, so they would
2: have died. No, so it says yeah. air breathing, but it says on land. So I've always wondered. Yes. The yes. not? Die die? No. That was just a big. question.
0: No, some of them survived. A lot of them died.
2: In the cataclysm itself, they died, not because of uh, the flood, just by right. the, and, and the damage. Yes. The rushing of the waters over the
0: face of the earth. Yeah, we'll look at this a little bit more in detail. No, that's fine. Excellent question. Okay. Where were we? Okay. All the high mountains, not some of them, everywhere under the heavens were covered. All right. And by the way, calculations have been made, and the quantity of ocean waters on planet Earth. Uh, This tells us that the the continent or continents, if there were more than one, were different than what they are today. There was not a Mount Everest. The mountains were lower. In other words, it was more uniform geography, uh, geological formations. But there's enough water. I think the number is like if the... Earth were perfectly smooth. I think the number is like two and a half miles water deep. So the mountains before the flood, if that's the right number, it's maybe one and a half miles. It's something in that range. So the mountains before the flood, they would have all been less than about a mile and a half, somewhere in there. Okay. Anyway, verse 21, all flesh, coal again, all flesh that moved on the earth perished on the earth. Got it? Birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming things. Amphibious creatures, swarming ants, insects maybe. That swarm upon the earth and all mankind. Coal again. How many times? One, two, three, four, five. And we're not done yet. Notice verse 22. Of all that was on the dry land, coal again all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died all. How could Moses have communicated a universal flood any better than this? I mean, how could he have done it without emphasizing it anymore? And then verse 23, thus he blotted out every. And the every is a translation of coal. Every living thing that was upon the face of the earth. See the emphasis in this one passage. And you have this throughout. Now, Granted, you have more examples of coal in this short passage, but you, you find it elsewhere as well. So, he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping... See the repetition as well. Animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, and then now we have the exception. Only, the Hebrew word is ak. only Noah was left together with those that were with him on the ark. Only eight people, three sons and three wives, and Noah's wife. Okay. Notice the emphasis. Could Noah have been clearer? If Noah had intended to limit it, he could have limited it, but he seems to, or not Noah, but Moses, he could have gone the other direction. He could have said in Mesopotamia, or he might have been more specific in different ways, but he emphasizes the all. In fact, there's others as well. Oh, 38 times. I'm sorry, I said 34. Coal occurs about 38 times. And in this column, the translation is all. In that column, the translation is every. So it speaks of all flesh 12 times. Speaks of the all the earth two times. Coal with erets, Fountains of the deep in 711. All the fountains of the deep. Coal again, Hebrew word. All the mountains, seven nineteen, are covered. We read that one. All mankind, seven twenty one. All successive generations, nine twelve. The word coal in all of these. So it's not just that one little passage together, but throughout the narrative. Chapters. Uh, there's some in chapter six. There's some in chapter seven. Some in chapter eight, and even in chapter nine. And it's the same word translated, everything, at least two times. Every living thing, four times. Every kind, two times there in 19 and 20. Everywhere, 719. I think it's talking about probably mountains everywhere. So it uses "cold" two times in that passage. Every creeping thing, reference two times. Every swarming thing, 721. Every beast two times, every living creature four times, and in all I count about thirty-eight times. I might have left one out or two out or something. See the emphasis? How do you come up with a local flood? You have to explain every one of those occurrences away and limit them to Mesopotamia. I got
2: thirty-five on huh?
0: account. <laughs> I counted. Okay, you'll have to go back and count them from, from the, the text itself. When you count them, be sure and go to the Hebrew text. There's another interesting usage of the language. When it refers to the flood, the Genesis flood, it uses a unique word. Every reference to the Genesis flood in the Hebrew text uses mabul. Mabul. That flood? That's flood in Hebrew. How,
2: how do you spell that sort of phonetically for us?
0: M A B U L.
2: Mark- Do no, yeah,
0: consonants. Say that again.
2: No consonants in Hebrew. You mean, you say, hey, you hey, mean hey. vowels? You
0: mean vowels?
2: Yeah,
0: this is a vowel pointing. Oh, because it it qualifies it's one, it
2: to make it better. Okay.
0: Yeah, and these were added to the Masoretic text. In the Old Testament, it occurs twelve times. Every reference refers to the Genesis flood. So when God promises he's not going to bring a mabul, he's talking about he's not going to bring a universal flood. There's other words in the Hebrew text that you could translate flood. And in fact, they occur in the biblical text. Sometimes it's the flooding of a river or sometimes it's the flowing of many waters. You could use, yeah, or sometimes it It is used of flooding waters, but it's never used of the Genesis flood. This would be a local flood. Or, uh, nachar, and when you have the H sound, you have to start from way deep. Nachar. Nachar, another Hebrew word for flooding or flowing of waters. There's also nachal, that's even a deeper H sound. See the little uh, closing of yes, the gap there? So- you have to spit. Do you notice the spit? Yeah,
2: you wet
0: my That's Hebrew.
2: <laughs>
0: the point you know, is... The
2: Hebrews did not have any congestion whatsoever. We say that, if, that we could take messages from God to say, as he did before, there was no one
0: Good. Yeah. The point I'm making here is there's a very specific word that refers to the Genesis flood exclusively. And there's other words that refer to floods of other kinds in the Hebrew text. Similarly, in the New Testament, we have kataklusmas five times in the New Testament. What word do we get from kataklusmas? <laughs> Cataclysm. Very good. That word only occurs five times in every context. It refers to the Genesis flood, sometimes by Jesus, sometimes by Peter, sometimes in other contexts, five times, kataklusmas. And again, there's other words that refer to flooding, like a local flood that writers of the New Testament are going to use. Patamas is one of them. Mura is another Greek word. But they are never used in reference to the Genesis Flood. They're always used of local or moving waters. Or patamas could refer to a river where you have waters flowing. But only kataklusmas is used for the Genesis Flood. So very unique terms. So this is a unique event. This is a universal event. Just the existence of the ark. We've already somewhat alluded to that. Argues for a flood. Uh, he could have had Noah leave the area in a hundred years. He could have gone many, many miles. He, just the existence of the ark and it was huge. It, depending on what you use for a cubit, the length would be four hundred and fifty feet. In fact, a boat of that size had not been constructed until about the 1800s since noah 's ark huge, huge boat. Three levels, the height, what do I have there? 45 feet high, tall, four stories, four and a half stories, 75 feet wide, box-like, it's described, and just a little floor space there, 2.2 acres. And if you read that book that I referred to, Wood Merapi, he uses the biblical text to argue that not every species of even air-breathing animals had to be on the ark. It uses the same word that God uses in Genesis 1 when he created what? What did he create? Not species. Kinds. So only kinds had to be on the ark. He didn't have to have chihuahuas and German shepherds and St. Bernard's. All he needed was two of the dog kind. Two of the horse kind, two of the cat kind, only kinds. We discussed this earlier. And the ark was plenty big. Luke, you got no lots bring, of questions.
2: no insects on the No. They're not all the insects. They don't
0: breathe. They're, they're not considered air breathing. They've got pores where they take in oxygen. And who needs insects? Try to kill cockroaches. The Genesis flood didn't destroy cockroaches. We still have them today.
2: Where did the insects come from? Then they weren't
0: taken onto the ark. Oh, they they would crawl into every little crevice of the ark.
2: Oh, and this was we don't
0: They would be on floating floating debris.
1: They
2: just did yeah. they <laughs> just snuck on to there basically?
0: Still always yeah.
2: the five hundred railroad quotes when maybe CTS. What is that I'm
0: an athlete. Basketball courts.
1: Twenty
0: basketball courts. Five hundred and twenty-two railroad cars. All right. A man in Holland built a reconstruction, that's it. Four hundred and ten by ninety five by seventy five. 2,500 tons, wow, and Ken Ham in Answers of Genesis built a reproduction of the ark there. There's a person to give you scale. Here's people to give you scale. High tower to give you scale there. Yeah, in Kentucky.
2: Is it as big as the ark was? Yes. In Kentucky? Yes. I want
0: to go there. Yeah. It's a regular museum. well, there's two. There's a museum that's further north, and then it contains a somewhat of a museum itself. Uh, just another sketch to illustrate it and to compare it to a 747, compare it to dinosaurs. And by the way, dinosaurs are reptilian, and reptiles can reproduce r- relatively young, and reptiles tend to continue to grow as they grow older. So Noah would have only had to have taken maybe smaller dinosaurs that could still reproduce on the Ark.
2: And is that what becomes the Behemoth? behemoth?
0: Yeah, and that's just a bad and translation.
2: And the other you know, the references. Bible, the Bible, the Bible.
0: Yep. Yeah, the Bible. By the way, when the Bible was translated, the King James Version uh, dinosaurs had not been discovered, so they're just trying to come up with a word. And a lot, of, a lot of the later translations are influenced by that King James translation. So the ark's existence are used for Genesis flood. Why so much detail? Why a hundred years to build it? Why so large? Why so buoyant? And tests have been conducted using those dimensions. It was extremely stable. It would withstand tsunamis. So, sixth, geological upheaval. The geological upheaval is described the fountains of the deep. I'm going to give you a theory from a man that lived here. Well, he lived in Los Alamos because he worked at Los Alamos National Labs. His theory is probably the best theory amongst all creationists all over the world. And I'll describe it in more detail next week when we talk about the scientific evidence but let me give you a thumbnail sketch of his theory of what started the flood and what the biblical language seems to point to in terms of for example the fountains of the deep what are those the older theory was that there were subterranean waters that god broke apart and they came to the surface and flooded the earth now that's a theory And that persisted for many years amongst those that were very conservative. John Baumgardner, in fact he got a degree from UNM and worked at Los Alamos till he retired, came up with a different theory. Let me explain a little bit of it by showing you... Now that doesn't show up too well. You can make out that that's the Atlantic Ocean. For some reason that slide didn't show up. The thing I'm looking at is there's the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, South America, Africa, Europe, United States. If you took all the water out of the Atlantic Ocean, you would see a mountain range at the bottom. Here's a better shot. And you have a mountain range under the Atlantic Ocean. Geologists don't dispute this. In other words, it's there. And all of geologists know about it. The Mid-Atlantic Ridge, what kind of a mountain range do you think it might be? Volcanic.
2: And a fountain means what spews out of that?
0: The theory is, very good, you're figuring it out. This mountain range was formed as a result of volcanic action. And what Baumgartner proposes, if you take a slice and look at it from the side of the Atlantic Ocean, see there's North Africa, North America, South America here, In the middle, if you took all the water out, you have this mountain mountain range. It's called the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. It's a series, basically, at one time the ocean seemed to crack open and produce volcanic flow. Something like this sketch. And by the way, this is Baumgartner's sketch. I got these from him. And you have hot lava breaking to the surface forming a mountain, and you have lava coming in contact with water. What do you have? Steam. Lots of steam. So the idea is the fountains of the deep are either a specific reference to the volcanic fountains and or the interaction between lava in contact of the waters producing a a stream of water that would shoot up into the atmosphere. no
2: one would have known
0: that,
2: writing that, because, I mean, it's like it had to
0: be inspired. Exactly. So, theory is, we have some mechanism that God produced to cause what geologists call subduction of land masses. Subduction is land masses going back into the mantle, and obviously because of the temperature dissolving the rock into the lava, the, 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 uh, the mantle, and you have pressures bringing other lava to the surface. When it comes into contact, you have a fountain of steam that would shoot up into the atmosphere. Climatologists today say that it's impossible to have a rainstorm of 40 days and 40 nights. Because you cannot supersaturate the atmosphere to produce that kind of a storm. But if you have a continuous supply of water, as this would produce, then you have intense global rain that would spread laterally. And by the way, in the Pacific, you have the, what is it called? The ring of fire, which is similar. So you may have both actions going on at the same time, producing tremendous amount of steam from... Pole to pole, from the North Pole to the South Pole. So you have huge amounts of water being uh, sent up into the sky that could produce, and the text says, after the fountains are deep, then you have 40 days and 40 nights of of rain. islands in the Pacific
1: still being formed for the same reason.
0: Yeah, exactly. So you have the subducting of some continents or the existing continent. So you have catastrophic plate tectonics. Clouds, intense global rain. So the waters came from the great deep. All the fountains of the great great deep burst open. So that makes a lot of sense scientifically, and you can observe some of the effects left, the traces of perhaps the the flood event.
1: What about the theory of a water barrier between the sun and us? That's know. another.
0: That's another theory, but that's it wouldn't theory. have to. Yeah, it's another theory. So that's the fountains of the deep. You have a storm over a year, a one-year storm from the fountains of the deep. Forty days of rain. A, in the text, it refers to the waters rising 150 days. That's just the rising of the waters as a result of all of these geophysical, geotectonic effects, producing hydrodynamic effects that produces 100. 150-day rising of waters. And then in chapter 8, you have another 150 days. There are a different 150 days of receding of the waters where now these waters are depositing all that material that was ripped up as a result of these movements of tsunami waves of water. And then you you end up with a 377-day ride. Now there's seven extra days there. Because if you read at the beginning of chapter 7, Noah and his family were on the ark seven days before the flood. So that adds up to 377. The flood was 370 days from that one text, 711, to that 814. So we have mountains inundated. This this is a huge event, the point I'm making. Mountain inundation, mountain building, continental movements. Even cosmological changes are mentioned in chapter 8. Here's the flood chronology. So they enter the ark here seven days before. Then the flood begins. and Then we have 40 days of rain. So there's day 40. You have 150 days of increasing or prevailing of the waters. Then you have another 150 of descending of the waters observation of the mountaintops, you have a date for it. You add up all those dates or those time frames. The ravens are sent out, and it it's specific in terms of the time. And Noah opens the cover, looks out, and they don't come out until the land dries. So the waters recedes, they have a period of drying, disembarking. That adds up to 377 days that they're on the ark. 370 70 days from the beginning to the disembarking of the ark, And so that's the geological upheaval. This is tremendous. We can't even envision all of the earth totally inundated and destroyed. And you know the power of water. The power of water is extremely destructive. It can move large boulders. And there's evidence. I'm going to give you some of the scientific evidence that includes some of that. Next week.
2: And and that steam uh, from it would change the temperature and fuse things together, kind of like melt them together?
0: I'm not sure what melt what I'm not sure exactly what
2: I'm saying. I'm getting too excited.
0: Yeah. Glad you're excited.
2: (laughs) Number seven,
0: in chapter nine, God enters into a covenant. And it's a covenant with Noah, and it's a covenant with the earth. So it has physical aspects to it. The essence of it is that he's not going to send another mabul, not going to send another universal flood. So if there have been floods, local floods, since then God has broken his covenant. And a covenant in the Bible is a contract. It's like your mortgage It's a legal document. God entered into covenant. It's not just a promise. It's legally binding. And a covenant measures performance. That's what a covenant does. It stipulates what one party is to do. And if there's two parties to it, it stipulates what the other party is to do. In the Noahic covenant, it's a one-way covenant. It's a unilateral covenant that only God binds himself, and it measures, so we can look back, has God ever broken his covenants? He's never broken any of them, including the Noahic. So if he's talking about a local flood, then he broke the covenant, which is unthinkable. So that's a strong argument for a universal worldwide flood. Okay, I'm going to... Next time we'll talk about some of these things... I believe, for example, that the flood produced conditions that would have produced an ice age. So we would put the ice age after the Genesis flood, and since then we've been having global warming, and there weren't any cars in Noah's day. Okay, we also have the extinction of dinosaurs, very barren lands, climate changes, geological upheavals, new continents, different configuration of oceans. So a totally different dispensation after the flood.
2: So you don't think the dinosaurs died out in the ice age?
0: Yeah, I think the conditions after the flood were not conducive for the survival of dinosaurs. What's the thought of the ark being that big and the hunt for the ark? Uh, I think it's possible that it's there. Well,
2: have so to have seen it, it. And it, but the ice only melts back so much right. in so many years in Turkey.
0: Yeah, there have, been, there have been several expeditions. Yeah, there have been several. In fact, Baumgartner went on one himself to verify what some had claimed they might have found, and some of his tests showed that that was not. So the flood narratives demand a universal flood. You really have to do damage to them to come up with a local flood. The rest of the Old Testament speaks of a flood, and the New Testament as well, and Jesus particularly. So that's the scripture evidence. Next week, we'll look at the scientific evidence. Somebody? You can see your
2: website <laughs>
1: <laughs> For his glory, and m.
0: There you go. For, For his, his glory. 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 Yeah, no spaces. For his glory, nm.com. <laughs> can you do it? I right. No. I'm too
2: excited. Oh, you're too excited. Bro.
0: All right. You can't pray when you're
1: too
2: excited.
1: I'll close this. Door. Lord God, we are just overwhelmed with with you. God, you're awesome. You are majestic. You're the creator of all things. And God, as we dig more into your Scripture and we see the covenants that you formed and that you've never once betrayed us, even though we, we deserve nothing. So God, we're so thankful for your creation. God, we thank you that you love us so much. Jesus, you came here and you gave your life for us. You conquered death. You rose from the grave. So many times you just keep you keep showing us that you are beyond all measure. And Lord, we're so thankful for that. God, we thank you that when we get up in the morning, we can look to the Sandias and see just such beautiful mountains and sunsets that you paint for us every day. So Lord, we pray that you open our hearts, continue to open our minds, that we would learn more. Uh, Lord, I thank you for Ray coming, for being willing to donate his time to do this, and uh, just what a humble, smart man he is. And we're we're thankful that we get to pull from his knowledge. So God, I pray that you bring us back safely next week. I pray that you allow us to bring a visitor, if that's your will. And I pray that we would share your word with someone. And it's in Jesus' most magnificent name that I pray. Amen. Amen.